So today I wanted to talk to you guys about the fear of the Lord. I know this is not something that is very common uh, in today's society, today's world. Uh, oh, I like that. Nice. Very nice. Um, yeah, the fear of the Lord. And it's, it's, obvi- it's a lot of times misunderstood. And so hopefully I can bring some clarity to you guys today or kind of clear the air about what it means to actually fear the Lord. So I want to start right off the bat with a definition of the word fear. Now, if you look up the word fear in the Webster's 1828 dictionary, the very first version of our dictionary, or the Webster's dictionary that we had, um, I believe it was Noah Webster, he included a lot of biblical meanings to words. Like he would interpret words using the Bible. And uh, so here we are, fear. This was definition number six in the 1828 Webster Dictionary. It says, in scripture, fear is used to express a filial, I'll explain that in a little bit, or a slavish passion. In good men, the fear of God is a holy awe or reverence of God and his laws, which springs from a just view and real love of the divine character, leading the subjects of of it to hate and shun everything that can be off, that can offend such a holy being and inclining them to aim at perfect obedience. So the real key part I want you guys to see here is the part which springs from a just view and a real love of the divine character. That's where the fear of the Lord really comes into play. It's from a place deeply rooted in love. And we're going to get more into that in just a little bit. I mentioned the word filial. It was in that definition there. It's Filial is a word pertaining to a son or a daughter becoming a child in relation to his parents. So filial love is an affection as a child naturally bears for his mother or his father. So uh, in that regard, hi mom and dad. I know y'all are watching or hopefully y'all are watching. I have such a respect for my dad. Um, some of you might have had the chance to meet him and my family. They were here not too long ago. Uh, two things I want to point out about my dad is he was the role model uh, for a real devotion in the Word of God to like waking up early in the morning and studying the Word of God, praying and meditating and memorizing Scripture. He is my role model. So, Dad, if you're watching, I love you. I love you. I don't want to cry, but I love you so much, Dad. Um, The second thing is he is by far the most patient person I know. Like, it's unbelievable how patient he is. Well, it is believable, but because he is patient. But he is by far the most patient person I know. He is so long-suffering, like, with me growing up, with my sister, just with our family, like, he'll, he'll be driving uh, in traffic, and me, my sister, my mom, we all have, we all have our GPS open, right? We're trying to tell him where to get to somewhere, like, while we were here in Raleigh, and we're all telling him different directions at once, and he's just casually doing his own thing, like, he knows kind of the area, so he's not stressing out, he's not yelling back at us, like, no, I should have turned here, I should go straight, um, but the one, the very one time I heard my dad raise his voice at me is probably one of the scariest memories I have of my dad. My dad is not scary, so don't get me wrong, dad, if you're watching. 
Um, my dad's not scary. He's very loving, obviously very patient, like I was saying. Uh, but the one memory I have of him was I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I had just bought my first, like, big purchase. It was an Xbox 360. Um, and I was playing it for the first time. My dad walks in the room, and he noticed that the console was a little bit louder, I guess probably than it should have been. It had a fan that was going. And uh, what he did, I was in the middle of playing the game, and if you know about CDs, we still had hard copy CDs back then. I know I'm not talking to a bunch of young people, but yeah, CDs. It was a hard copy CD. Yeah, y'all know what CDs are. So it was a hard copy CD, so it's spinning, obviously, really fast. Y'all know how it works, how it reads a CD. And him picking up the console to see why it was being so loud, it damaged the CD. And uh, my preteen-year-old self had a fit. And I got really mad, really upset, and my dad's trying to apologize, said, I'll replace it for you, don't worry about it. And I'm just, I won't cool down. And uh, I'm, just, I'm getting so frustrated, and I think, if I remember correctly, at one point, like, I slammed my fist against the wall beside me. I didn't put a hole in it or anything like that. Don't worry. But uh, I guess that kind of did it for my dad <laughs> at that point. So I think he just, like, grabbed me really quick and, like, pushed me up against the wall. And he raised his voice the one and only time I've ever heard him, like, really, like, super get stern with me. And I just remember, like, oh, my gosh, like, I don't, I don't even know what's about to happen. I've never seen this before. Um, but he was, he was very gentle with me. I didn't get spanked or anything after like that, but, uh, probably should have. So thanks dad for not tearing me up for that. Um, but taking that into perspective with a loving father and I, I would put that into perspective with, you know, sometimes people say they want to hear the voice of God, but every time I hear someone who has hear a testimony of someone who has actually heard the voice of God, it's like, supposed to be like really scary like it scares these people who have actually heard the audible voice of God so while in my mind I would like to hear God speak at the same time I don't know if I want to hear him speak because of I I don't know just like it'll scare me or whatever I don't know it'll be I don't know how I'll feel, but in that moment with my dad, I feel like that's what that kind of encounter would be like. And in that moment, you could say I feared my dad in the respect of receiving judgment, that he was going to punish me right on the spot. But in actuality, he was just letting me know everything was going to be okay. Like, you seriously don't need to freak out. You need to get your anger under control. And it was from a loving point of view that my dad corrected my anger. And uh, just from that place, I want to go forward here. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me, I encourage you guys, bring a physical Bible. It's like a pet peeve of mine. Me and Josh always talk about it. Like, if you have a physical Bible, there's nothing like it. I have my big one here. Me and Josh, I think, actually have the same Bible. I copied him, so give him the credit. But um, I really like it. It's a parallel version. It's with the Amplified and the King James Version. So I like old school, King James, taking notes, pen and paper. If you ever see me in church on a Sunday, I'm taking notes with pen and paper like Joshua's got there. So, yeah. Turn to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we're going to go to the very end of the chapter. And so a little bit about Ecclesiastes. It was written by Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest who have ever walked the earth, right? Second, if you're counting Jesus, because Jesus is wisdom, so he is by default 
wiser than Solomon. Um, but here, here's Solomon. He, you could say he had probably a midlife crisis. He got uh, involved with too many women. I don't know, with concubines and wives combined, it was probably over a thousand women. So I don't even know how you do something like that, which is that's just bizarre to me. I think I'm good with Ashley. Uh, so yeah, I am good with Ashley. No, that that's it. So no one try anything. I'm just kidding. Um, but Solomon, he's he's getting involved with too many wives, and it, and it leads him to seek after other gods. He gets into this mindset of you could call it humanism. If you know about anything about humanism, it's basically just the pursuit of happiness. The meaning of life is to be happy, and that's what Solomon basically had the the whole like middle of his life after he became king. Uh, that's kind of what he got involved with. But here he is. I would say probably at the end of his life, he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes. And here he is at the very end of the book. He gives us a summary of what he thinks it means to live here on earth. And if we could do just one thing for me, uh, I'd really like to do this with you guys. We used to, or some people might have done it. Some of you might know about it. But I would like us all, just in honor of the word, to stand up and read this scripture here. And then we're going to turn to one more and read that one as well. And I'm going to pray and we're going to sit back down, okay? So you're not going to stand the whole time. Um, so here we are. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to read verses 13 and 14. So I have it in the New King James Version here. It says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And now if you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 35. And while you do that, I just want to read the Amplified's version of that last verse we just read there. Verse 13 said, When all has been heard, the end of the matter is, Fear God, worship him with awe-filled reverence, knowing that he is Almighty God, and keep his commandments, for this applies to every person. So now, uh, if you're with me in Matthew chapter 22, uh, here a lawyer had approached Jesus, asking, testing Jesus, which is the greatest command, uh, testing him and saying, and, uh, Jesus replies to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. So God, thank you so much for this opportunity that we could gather here today, that we could uh, discuss your word, God. I pray that no one here leaves the same way that they came, God, that everyone can receive something from the word that will be spoken today. God, I pray that you use me in a way that reflects you and only you, God. God, my words, God, my just guide this meeting, Lord. Have your way. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Thank you so much for doing that. It's, uh, it's one thing. It's a big thing for me to really honor the word of God. And if that's, if that's anything I can tell you guys today, tonight, is that the word of God should be, like, way up here in your life. Like, it should be number one. Like, there's God and his word. Like, they are equal. And in fact... If you uh, go to, 
uh, where was it? I believe it's Psalms 138, verse 2. It says that God elevates his word even above his own name. So if there's one thing that you can take away from tonight is that, like, know the word of God, read the word of God, dig into it. Like, we should be so in love with the word of God. And it's something just, it's such a beautiful book. Like, and it all points back to Jesus. That's what's so amazing about it. There's so many different authors so many different books, 66 books in total, I think, and all of them point to Jesus. So, obviously, the Bible is composed in two parts. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And just, if you take these two verses that we just read into perspective, you could say that the Old Testament has a theme of fearing God. So, the fear of the Lord and uh, the law, the fact that we need a Savior, that we can't live get to heaven on our own, that we need a mediator, we need someone to rescue us from our sin. And then we have the New Testament, which I believe to be the love of God, that the Savior was sent, that the Savior did come, that he did save us, and that he is a perfect reflection of God's love for us. So, but just like anything else, these two concepts can be taken to an extreme, they can be pushed to the limits, and then they can fall into error. So, Say, if you take the fear of the Lord and you push it to the extreme, it's all about rules, right? It's all about law. You do this. If you don't, you get punished. You do this. If you do it, great, right? So you can get really quick with the fear of the Lord into legalism. So tonight, as I talk about the fear of the Lord, know that it is not from a point of legalism. That is the last thing that I want you guys to take in what it means to fear the Lord. So R.C. Sprawl, for those of you that know him, he spoke a few words on legalism that I'd like to share with you today. He has uh, three points uh, on what legalism looks like. Number one, he says, focusing on God's laws more than a relationship with God. And in quotation, he says, legalism forms where one is concerned merely with keeping of God's law as an end in itself. Legalism divorces obedience from God's love and redemption. Point number two, keeping external laws without a truly submitted heart. Legalism obeys the externals while the heart is far removed from any desire to honor God. The intent is his law or Christ. And number three, adding human rules to divine laws and treating them as divine. Sproul says, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for this very reason, saying, you teach human traditions as if they were the word of God. So, putting all of these into context, it's basically just rules. If you do it, you're making someone happy. If you don't do it, you're going to get punished for it, just straight up. That's Legalism is very black and white. You have to do this, or that's it. And so... To counter legalism, you have to bring in the love of God. And so, God does not desire for us just to blindly follow his laws, right? He wants a relationship. He sent Jesus to die for our sins that we could have an authentic relationship with him. So, all of us have sinned and God accepts us just the way we are, but he doesn't want us to stay in that place of sin. He wants to bring us back up. So, If we take today's narrative, if you look at the progressive church, is probably what they call it now, uh, they push to what used to be called hyper-grace. 
Now it's more of a progressive Christianity. And um, they're all about the love of God. Yes, God is love. He loves us, and he loves you no matter what you do, and you can live however you want, and God will still love you. You can still go to heaven. But that is a lie. So it's just a lie. That if you cannot live however you want, sinning habitually, as we'll see here in a little bit, and still go to heaven. So we have lawlessness. Those who practice sin habitually, it is lawlessness. So if you go with me to 1 John chapter 3, 4 through 6. So here we are in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. I'm going to read it in the amplified version from my Bible here. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Ignoring God's laws by action or neglect or by tolerating wrongdoing, being unrestrained by his commands and his will. You know that he appeared in visible form as a man in order to take away sins, and in him there is absolutely no sin, for he was neither the sin nature nor has he committed sin or acts worthy of blame. No one who abides in him, who remains united in fellowship with him deliberately, knowingly, or habitually practices sin. No one who habitually sins has seen him or known him. And I don't know about you guys, but that's probably what I see most of today. We've kind of, the church has kind of left the legalistic point of view on the word of God. Uh, You might find a church here and there who are like really strict about maybe the way you dress, uh, the way, if you're super, super old school, like the way, uh, like I know from a church that my parents grew up in, the men actually sat on one side of the church, the women sat on the other side of the church. Uh, the women had to wear a covering and all those things. And some of them still do that. And that's, if that's part of your culture, tradition, that's absolutely fine. But God's word doesn't say that we have to do those things. Now, yes, wives should still submit to their husband. Yes, there's still order in the church and the way we do everything. But God doesn't say that if you dress in a t-shirt, blue jeans, and sneakers, and you come to church, that you're going to go to hell. That's just... That, that's not how God works. He, he just wants a relationship with us. And Jesus actually said in Matthew 24, 24, verse 12, because lawlessness will abound, the disciples had asked him what it will be like before he returned. Jesus said, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And he's not even talking about the world. He's talking about believers. Because lawlessness will abound in the world, the love of believers will grow cold. So we have to be diligent to keep ourselves in the word, to stay rooted in Jesus. That way, you know, we don't, we don't want to grow cold. We want to be hot. We want to be on fire for Jesus. So the fear of the Lord and the love of God must go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other because then you fall into a form of extremism uh, that is legalism and or lawlessness. So As I talk about the fear of the Lord today, just keep the love of God in the back of your mind. Uh, Just take it with a grain of salt that it is from a point of love that we fear the Lord, that we keep his commandments. So let's talk about what the fear of the Lord is not. So if you're taking notes, the fear of the Lord is not an immediate fear. It is not uh, a fear of judgment. So if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 20, Uh, Exodus chapter 20 is where 
God gave Moses the Ten Commandments for the first time, uh, writing them on stone tablets. And then Moses has just come down uh, from the mountain, and he's getting ready to introduce Israel to the God that he met at the burning bush. That's what the whole point of was taking them from Egypt is so that they could worship God on the same mountain that Moses encountered God at. So here they are uh, at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, more commonly known as, and it says, now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound of a trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. And listen, he uses fear twice in the sense, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So Moses says, don't fear, but fear God. Two different kinds of fear. The first fear, he says, do not fear because they're afraid that God's going to judge them right there and then because they know that they have not been keeping God's commands. If you know anything about the Israelites going through the wilderness, grumbling and complaining, absolutely zero faith, and yet they've seen all these signs, wonders, and miracles walking through the deserts uh, in Egypt. Just the fact that, oh gosh, like sending locusts, absolute darkness, hail, plagues, like all these things to the Egyptians. And then even through that, God is feeding them constantly through the desert, sending manna, quail, striking a rock, water comes out, throwing a, a twig in a, in a pond, and it, it turns sweet. Like you see all these things, and they finally meet this awesome God and they don't want anything to do with them because they know they've been messing up this whole time and they're about to die. But Moses says, no, God is testing you that you might fear him and he, and so that you may not sin. So it's a fear of honor, not a fear of punishment. And I like the way John uh, words it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. I'll read it from the Amplified again. It says, there is no fear in love. Dread does not exist, but perfect, complete, full-grown love drives out fear because fear involves the expectation of divine punishment, just like the Israelites had just experienced. So the one who is afraid of God's judgment has not been perfected in love, has grown to a sufficient understanding of God's love. So we're saying if you've not been perfected by the love of God, like we've had the opportunity now, if you've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Hopefully you've been perfected by God's love. You no longer have to fear God. You don't have to hide behind a curtain, give your sacrifice to a priest, and have him do all the work that your sins may be atoned for. We can have that relationship. It's just a direct line to you and God that we can have a relationship with him. So the fear of the Lord is, we talked about what it is not. Let's talk about what the fear of the Lord is and what that looks like. So earlier I read from the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, that same definition actually referenced a verse in the Bible, and here it is, Jeremiah 32, verse 38 through 40. It says, they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, and they will fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make them an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear 
in their hearts that they will not depart from me. So if you remember back to the word filial, he, it's, it's an honor, it's a respect that's due God. It's that honor, that fear, that respect of him that we do not want to do anything to hurt him. We don't want to do anything to offend such a holy God. And so the most common verse you hear is in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if you take that verse into context, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So you could say that knowledge is the presence of instruction. And we know that instruction comes from the Word of God. Second Timothy chapter 3 says that all, that the Bible is, uh, it can be used for instruction, conviction, correction, and the training in righteousness. So if you take that, pair it with Psalms 111 verse 10, and the Amplified, it reads, The reverent fear of the Lord is the beginning, the prerequisite, the absolute essential and alphabet of wisdom, a good understanding and a teachable heart are possessed by all those who do the will of the Lord. His praise endures forever. So, how many know that applied knowledge is wisdom? If you have knowledge, you can have all the knowledge of the world, but it doesn't become wisdom until it has experience or you've been able to apply it, right? And so, if we say that the Word of God is instruction, and we have the knowledge of the instruction, and then we complete the instruction, or we are obedient, then it becomes wisdom. So that's where we get the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, knowledge of the word of God, knowledge of his instruction. And then the wisdom is when we walk out that obedience of the word of God. And so you can also see at the latter portion of this verse, it says, a good understanding and a teachable heart. A teachable heart is pointing to humility, someone who is humble, able to learn. Um, And so, therefore, having said both of those things, obeying God's word in perfect obedience, which means having the proper motive and attitude as well in fulfilling his word, that is the fear of God. So it's not just blindly following rules, but it's having the attitude of God. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I want to, not because I have to, but because I love you so much, you love me first now, how can I show you that I love you back? And that's what it is. So the fear of the Lord is obedience, but what does that look like? It looks like love. And with love, I'll give you three points. Love looks like worship, humility, and intimacy. So let's look first at love. And I have this description up for you. The fear of the Lord is a posture of the heart a lifestyle that pleases him and refuses to disappoint him. And why don't we disappoint him? Because we love him. So love is the motivator behind the fear of the Lord. Everything we do should be motivated by love, as we'll see in the life of Jesus when we get there uh, in just a little bit. Actually, Jesus' very words in John chapter 14, verse 21 through 24, says, The person who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who really loves me. And whoever really loves me and will be loved by my Father, I will love him and reveal myself to him. I will, I will make myself real to him. And Judas asked, Lord, 
what has happened, that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answers again, if anyone really loves me, he will keep my word, my teachings, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our dwelling place with him. One who does not really love me does not keep my words, and the word and the word teaching which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So, with love in mind, let's look at worship. What kind of worship uh, is worthy of a God that we love so much? It is a worship that is undivided, unadulterated worship. So, in Deuteronomy, this is what Jesus quote earlier in Matthew chapter 22. Again, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, your entire being, the Amplified reads. And so, uh, also, when Jesus, sorry, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he said that I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, meaning he wants your undivided, he wants all your worship. A fully devoted heart is what God desires from us. In Psalms 96, verse 4, it says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. In Psalms 98, verse 7, says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly, where we are now here at church, the assembly of the saints, and to be held in reverence by all of those around him. So, we know kind of now what worship should look like, undivided, completely devoted, but... How about if you have divided worship or you have adulterated worship? Well, the Bible gives us two examples, probably more examples, but two that I want to point out to you today. One, first in the Old Testament, if you go to Leviticus chapter 10, I want you guys to see this because um, the Bible is just really cool and sometimes God just does stuff that makes you think like, wow, that actually happened. (laughs) And so... We talk about it all the time on staff, just the fact, just some of the things that God does or the things that are in the Bible, it's just like Joshua calls it savage God when he just does stuff like, oh my gosh, like he's actually done this before. (laughs) So here we have Nadab and Abihu. These are two of Aaron's sons. Uh, They're getting ready to offer the Lord some incense uh, by fire, and we'll see how that goes for them. We have, uh, so verse 1, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered strange and unholy fire before the Lord as he had commanded them not to do. So the Amplified references Exodus 30, verse 9. It's, they were supposed to use the fire that was continually being burned, uh, probably somewhere in the temple, the Holy of Holies, um, the fire that was continually burned that was holy unto God, that was the fire that ought to have been used. And when it says strange fire, I don't know where they got this fire from. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say, and we don't know what it means to be strange fire, but this is how God reacts. And there came forth fire from before the Lord and killed them. And they died before the Lord. So just straight up, unholy fire, strange fire, Zap, you are dead. And that's, that's what it was like. So the priests, these are priests, like they were chosen by God. These are the sons of Aaron, the first high priest. They were supposed to have a life pure, holy, undefiled before God. And because of such a high 
rank, such a high position they had with God, they were expected to live a holy life, like this fear of the Lord, like you do everything to the T, because that's essentially all they had at that time. Like, you follow the law, or you die, in this case. Um, (laughs) And so you might be thinking, okay, well, this is Old Testament. Like, surely God doesn't do anything like this in the New Testament. Well, surprise. (laughs) Acts chapter (laughs) 5. Acts chapter 5, we have Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the story, but um, the early church, uh, if you read in the chapter just before the end of chapter 4, I believe it's uh, Barnabas. Some of you could probably tell me yes or no. Or Barnabas, he he sells a field or sells some land, and he gives all the proceeds to the church. And uh, so the very next chapter, Ananias and Sapphira, they, uh, they think... They want to do the same thing. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be looked at, held in high uh, esteem. And so what they do is they sell their land, and knowingly, like they're, they're cooperating together, Ananias keeps part of the proceeds for himself, gives the rest of it to the church, and says, this is what I sold the land for. This is the money, even though knowingly he had some, he had kept back some for himself. Peter asks him, why have you just lied to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to man, but to the Holy Spirit. Boom, he falls dead too. So, New Testament, man falls dead. Some people carry him out. Then comes Sapphira, and she doesn't know what just happened, so she thinks she's off the hook. Peter asks her, is this the amount that you sold the land for? She says, yeah, that's, that's what we sold it for. <laughs> And uh, Peter says, why have you also uh, lied to the Holy Spirit? Y'all are in cahoots with each other. Boom, the same people that just carried out your husband are here to take you out. Dead. D-E-D. Dead. (laughs) And so, (laughs) just like the Old Testament, I mean, apparently the Holy Spirit doesn't like to be lied to because (laughs) they just, yeah. This is in church. Imagine seeing that today. Someone is giving some very generous offering. Say someone wants to pay off the building, and they sold all this land, said, this is all the money that I got from selling the land, and then they just fell over. Can you imagine seeing that in church today? Someone says they have one of those big checks, and they say, I sold all my land to pay off this building, and then they fall over. D-E-D, dead. Dead. And and this is where they went wrong. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to make it about them. And that's obviously not in a place you want to be. When we gather at church, when we come here in this building, it's all about Jesus. We come here to worship Jesus. When we give to the offering, we give our tithes, we're giving unto the Lord, right? Even in listening the word, it's unto the Lord because we're hearing his words and it's to make us better, to make us a more devoted Christian, to live a life that's worthy uh, to such a holy God. And so making it not about us, making it about him, is the humility aspect. So let's look at humility. By default, the fear of the Lord requires humility and meekness because those who are humble know that it is not all about them, and those who are meek are willing to submit themselves to the will of another. 
So meekness and humility, you can kind of say they're interchangeable, but humility is more of a state of mind. It's a lowliness of the mind, and meekness is being submissive to a will, or in this case, a divine will, because it's the will of a father. So to keep that in the perspective of love, love humbles itself to meet the needs of another person. And we can see that clearly in the life of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Can you imagine? So you are God. I know we can't imagine being that because we'd have to exist outside of time. And that's just the most bizarre thing to me, to be able to comprehend anything without time. Um, But you're God. You've created everything. You've created this entire earth, everything that you can see God has created. And he humbles himself to take on the form of, first of all, a baby, like the lowest form that you can come as, a man. He was birthed from a woman. Like, you are God, and you are being birthed from a woman. You are a baby. You have to grow up and become just like everyone else, only to be rejected by the very people you came to save and to be brutally murdered. Even the death of a cross, meaning like Jesus, yeah, it was prophesied that Jesus would be on the cross, but he really came so that he would die, having lived a sinless life, that he died. Just the fact that he died means that he paid for our sin, but he chose the death of a cross. If you, like, if you just think about that, like the worst possible way to die at that time when Jesus came, the death of a cross, it's really just suffocation is what it is. And then if you didn't die fast enough, they broke your bones as you see the people on his right and his left. But obviously Jesus would not, it was prophesied that he wouldn't have any broken bones, but total side note. Um, Back on humility, Proverbs 22 verse 4 says, humility is the fear of the Lord and its wages are riches honor, and life. So there you have it, just straight up from the Bible. Humility is the fear of the Lord. So if you want to fear God, you have to be humble. And that's not just with God, that's with other people. Uh, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So that's why we serve and we love others just as Christ loved us. And lastly, I want to talk to you guys about intimacy. So we have all these rules, right, uh, with the fear of the Lord, but Rules without relationships leads to rebellion. That's by Josh McDowell. Uh, If you are curious, wanted to look that up. So if we want a relationship with God, in my mind, I would want to know what God likes, what God dislikes, right? I mean, that's typically what you do when you want to get to know a person. You ask them what they like to do, what they like to eat, what what makes them tick. Like, you ask all these questions. So... I think we should know what God likes and what he dislikes. So, taking that into context, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says, My son, if you receive my words and my treasure, my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So understanding the fear of the Lord and finding the knowledge of God. So our first core 
value, I guess you could say, of church, or our, one of our foremost pillar is know God, right? We have know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. So know God. I think that's very important that we know God, um, obviously, because that's who we, who we worship, who we seek to please. And so Proverbs chapter 25, verse 14 actually says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So if you want to have a friendship with the Lord, you want God to be able to call you his friend, you have to fear him. The Living Bible Translation says, the latter portion of the verse, with them alone, being them who fear him, he shares the secrets of his promises. So friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear God, those who keep his commandments, who love him unconditionally. And um, so now that we know what he does like, he likes obedience, he likes devotion, he likes worship. What does God not like? Well, that's very, very simple. It's no secret that God hates sin. Just straight up, God hates sin and he wants you to hate sin. First Peter 1.16 says, be ye holy as I am holy. Proverbs 18.13 says, fear the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 in the Amplified says, Therefore, since we have these great and wonderful promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from anything that contaminates the body and spirit, completing holiness, living a consecrated life, a life set apart for God's purpose in the fear of the Lord. So, now that we know what God likes, what he dislikes, what fear of the Lord is and what it is not, let's take a look at the life of Jesus. And so, if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, uh, here the writer of Hebrews is quoting, I believe it's from the book of Isaiah. It's God speaking to his son, Jesus. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. We saw lawlessness was sin. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So, you want to be anointed, you got to hate sin, you got to love righteousness. So, people always want to be anointed, they want to hear from God, they want to be used by God, they want to flow in the gifts of the Spirit, but we tolerate sin. So, we cannot expect to be used of God and still tolerate sin. That has to be the furthest thing from our devotion to God. Like, if you keep your eyes focused on God, sin shouldn't even be an issue in the first place. If you walk in such a, a love for God and you just want to do everything to please him, then sin really doesn't become an issue anymore. So Jesus says here um, in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, straight up says, Listen, my beloved friends, don't fear those who may want to kill and take your life, but can do nothing more. It's true that they may kill your body, but they have no power over your soul. The one you must fear is God, for he has both the power to take your life and the authority to cast your soul into hell. Yes, the only one you need to fear is God. And that's from the Passion Translation. I think it's worded very well uh, the way that the interpreter interpreted that portion of Scripture. And so from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, 
we see the seven spirits of God. And one of them in particular, it says that Jesus delighted in. So there shall come a they shall there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of of the Lord. When Jesus walked the earth, that is what he delighted himself in, to love righteousness and to hate lawlessness, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 1. And so Jesus delighted himself in doing the will of the Father. We see in John chapter 14, verse 31, it says, so the world may know without any doubt that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me and act in full agreement with him. So, having all said all that, practically, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, I'd like to give you five points. Do any of you know John Bevere? Any of you heard of him? He, he speaks really well on the subject, on the fear of the Lord. If you want to hear more about this, he is an excellent speaker, and he does very well in communicating uh, what the fear of the Lord is. And he gives five descriptions on what it means to fear the Lord and he takes it from the, the uh, story of Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. So, number one, John Bevere says, to fear the Lord is to obey instantly. And from that story, you see in verse 3 that Abraham, after having given the command to go sacrifice his one and only son, is that he woke up early the next morning. Now, he was just given the command to kill his one and only son, the son of promise, to whom we are now in the promise of, and he's supposed to go kill his only son, the one that was promised, the one that he got when he was 100 years old. And it says, Abraham woke up early the next morning. I don't know about you, but that would be one of the latest mornings for me (laughs) if that was a, a command I received from God. Hopefully, I pray I would do that. If I was commanded, I, I, I don't think God is going to ask that of me, though. <laughs> so, um, number two, it says, he, or John Bevere says, that the fear of the Lord is to obey him even when it doesn't make sense. So here, God made a promise to Abraham that he would give him a son, and that his son uh, would, that he would be the father of many nations, that this was the son of promise, the one that uh, whom God will uh, create his, uh, his nation from. And um, it just, it didn't make sense. Like, it doesn't make sense for God to give you one son, and then the son grows up, now go kill your son. It just, it doesn't make any sense, but Abraham did it. If you go on to read the story, um, it, I mean, Abraham follows through it with it to the T. Number three, John Bevere says, you obey God even when you don't see a benefit. Now in this, again, there was no benefit in killing his son. Like what is going to come of the act of killing your son? Your one and only son, the one that God promised you. There is, there's no benefit of that. It's his one and only child. Number four, it says, even when it hurts. We obey God even when it hurts. It says... God said so himself because he knew Abraham that this is 
the son whom you love. Abraham dearly loved his son Isaac, and God wanted to test him who he would love more. And so, I don't know about you, but that would deeply hurt if God asked me to kill my one and only son. And number five, Abraham obeyed to completion. The fear of the Lord is to obey God to completion. It said in the story that it took three days to get to the mountain that God, uh, I don't know, Abraham just saw it and he knew it was the place. It was a three-day travel um, for Abraham. And why was it a three-day travel? Well, God, I guess, gave him a chance to reconsider the fact that he was following through with this. So three days, Abraham, go kill your son. Three days later, is he still going to follow through with my command? And, of course, Abraham does, just as he's about to take the knife, he reaches for the knife, an angel stops him, says, now I know that you truly fear God. And then Abraham, he looked up and he saw a ram caught in the thicket, and the rest is history. So, number five, you obey to completion because partial obedience is still disobedience. So a lot of times we think we can get away maybe just with one little aspect, but if it is not in complete obedience with the word of God, it is still disobedience. So, final question, we're winding down. Having said all this, how could someone say the Israelites? They have just met God, they've seen all the signs and wonders they've been at Egypt, they've seen the dividing of the Red Sea. How can this group of people go from a place of this, having such a respect for God to generations later having completely forgotten about God and wanting nothing to do with God and going after other idols, uh, going after other nations and what they have to offer. And it's exactly that. What I said is they forgot. They chose not to remember. Therefore, they forgot. And God actually gave them the command in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. He said, Only take heed for yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. There's another part of it. Generations later, obviously the Israelites were not reminding their children, they were not reminding their grandchildren of the things of God. And just over time, Israel forgot. And that's that's where it comes from. It's choosing not to remember. So we have to choose to remember so that we do not accidentally forget no one ever forgets on purpose. It's just, it's just, you have to choose to remember. No one can purposely say, I'm going to forget this, because in saying you're going to forget this, you're actually remembering what you're wanting to forget, right? So it, it, it just a lot, yeah, it doesn't work out. <laughs> so, again, the fear of the Lord is not the fear of judgment. We saw that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, also in Exodus chapter 20. The fear of the Lord is obedience. And what it looks like is love, love in worship, love in humility, and intimate love with the Father. We saw that Jesus delighted himself in the fear of the Lord by obeying the Father's will, even unto death. And we saw that in Isaiah, John, and Luke. So I want to charge you guys with this tonight. So 
having said all this, Josh, if you, if you don't mind, you can come on up. Number one, does the Bible take first place in your life? Do you truly believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? That's number one. Do you truly believe that it's God's word? If, we, if the Bible is in the highest place of our life, nothing else will compare. There should be no reason to go after anything else to have the pursuit of happiness like with Solomon to go after other gods like the children of Israel. If the word of God is first place in our life and God even esteems his word above his own name, that's the place you want to be. So where, what, what place does the Bible have in your own life? Number two, do you read the word daily and do you apply it to your life? It's one thing to read the word every day, to maybe read a chapter a day, read two chapters a day. However, you, however, that, however God has asked you to spend that time with him, it's one thing to read it, but it's a completely different thing to apply it to your life to really get it deeply rooted within you. So applying it meaning in prayer, uh, worship, giving, walking in faith, um, telling others about Jesus, because with all that we have access to, uh, I don't know about you, I think I have six different translations of the Bible at my house. I have access to the internet, so endless commentaries, uh, endless notes. We cannot claim ignorance to the things of God. We just, we cannot claim ignorance because there's such availability to all the things that God has spoken to us. And number three, let your obedience be motivated by love. Get intimate with God. Like if, like I said earlier, the fear of the Lord is not just rules, rules, rules. You have to do this. You have to do that. It's from a place of love. So what does your love for God look like? It looks like obedience. It looks like worship. It looks like humility, submitting yourself to God. It looks like intimacy, waking up early or staying up late, however you choose to do it. I personally don't believe that God has a preference. I know that there's benefits to waking up early in the morning and spending your time with him that way. But however you choose to do it, God wants quality time, not quantity. So you can read and read and read and read, But if it's not doing anything in here, it's not quality time with the Lord. So I encourage you guys strongly, get in the word, apply it, be intimate with God. Share the things that you wouldn't share with just anyone else with God. Talk to him like someone does face to face. And I want to leave you guys with this. This is a quote by Leonard Ravenhill. And it hits me pretty hard, so I'm hoping it does the same for you. He said, one of these days... Some simple soul will pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it, then the rest of us will be embarrassed. So God, as we as we've looked at your word, as we've seen what it means to fear you, to love you, God submit ourselves to you, God. I thank you that we take the things that we've heard today, that we are able to apply them to our life. God, I pray that everyone here uh, has the opportunity to share God's love with someone else, that we go from this place in the fear of the Lord, God, that we desire first and foremost to please you above anything else, that we desire to worship you above anything else, God. And 
I thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross, who humbled himself to the point of the death on the cross, God. We praise you. We worship you. We give you our life. In Jesus' name, amen.